0: Grace, mercy, and peace are yours from God, our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The word of God for our meditation this morning is from John's Gospel, chapter 2, and we'll hear again these words. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This is the word of our God. My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, I think you would agree that often actions speak louder than words. For example, it's one thing to say, I love you, honey. It's quite another to get down on one knee and pull a sparkling diamond ring out of your pocket. It's one thing to say, I'm gonna be there, you can count on me. It's quite another to actually show up. It's one thing for the child to say, Mommy, I promise I'll take care of the puppy. It's quite another thing for the child to bathe the puppy and brush the puppy and feed the puppy and play with the puppy and clean up after the puppy. Again, actions often speak louder than words. In the portion of God's word before us today, our Savior, Jesus, really doesn't say all that much. Now, even in just a few words of our Savior, we have gold. I mean, those words are always profound. They are always rich with meaning. But in the text today, I think Jesus' actions, in a sense, even speak louder than his words. You could almost say that his actions preach a sermon to us today. And since the setting of this sermon is a wedding, well, you could say it preaches to us a beautiful wedding sermon. And like all good wedding sermons, this sermon is not focused on the happy couple. It is focused instead on their Savior. It's a sermon about Jesus' love for marriage. It's a sermon about Jesus' compassion for people. And it's a sermon about Jesus' glory as the one and only Savior of the world. About a week or so after Jesus' baptism, He and his mother and some of his disciples were invited to a wedding feast. Now, weddings in those days were quite a bit different from what we're used to. So the the happy couple would make their public promises to each other. At this point, they would be legally married. But then it wasn't until usually several weeks later that the bridegroom would come to the home of his bride, her home that she grew up in. He would pick her up and take her back in procession to his own home where they would then begin to live together as husband and wife. And it was at this time that they would have the wedding feast. Now for our wedding receptions, we tend to get together for a few hours and we eat some beef tips and maybe have a beer or two and dance the hokey pokey. Things were done on a much grander scale in those days. In fact, if the couple could afford it, they would have a feast that would last days, sometimes more than a week, and they would invite the entire village to be a part of it. Now we're not exactly sure of the connection here that, that got Jesus and his mother and some of his disciples invited to this wedding feast, but but you know something I think Jesus presence there just the fact that he went to it really says a lot about what he thinks of marriage. Just think of all the things that Jesus could have been doing. Jesus could have stayed at the Jordan where he was baptized and and preached to all those many people that came out to hear John. He could have gone to Jerusalem and to the temple courts where all the the high-ups were. He could have talked with the rabbis that were there. He could have been walking the dusty roads of Judea looking for more disciples, but he wasn't doing any of those things. Instead, he had a wedding to go to, and he made a point of attending. I think his attendance there reveals his deep love for marriage. Now, I would hardly call marriage these days a beloved institution. The institution of marriage is under attack from all sides and every conceivable angle. You know, people these days tend to think of getting married about as highly as buying a used car because of course before you buy that used car you want to kick the tires, you want to take a test drive, you want to try it out and so a lot of people most in fact these days decide to live together for a while to see if they're compatible. The problem with this is that it goes against God's holy will that marriage not be a trial but a lifelong commitment and it dirties the marriage bed which God says is meant to be kept pure. Make no mistake, my friends, Jesus attends weddings and marriages. He does not attend sleepovers. For many in this day and age, of course, marriage itself is really just kind of a joke. I mean, just look at what comes into our homes via the television set. How many shows are there out there on the networks and on cable that that actually portray marriage in a God-pleasing light? You know, sometimes I'm embarrassed even by the promos for some of these shows that, that are shown during the Sunday afternoon football game. They're kind of embarrassing. Jesus would hardly enjoy any of the trash that is pumped into our homes. Of course, these days, marriage has changed significantly in the eyes of most in the world. You no longer need a man and a woman, a man and a man, a woman and a woman. All of that is just fine. And if we speak up about that, even lovingly so, to call people to repentance, we are accused of the cardinal sin of our day and age, which is the sin of judging. Keep in mind, though, my friends, that Jesus does not give his approval to those kinds of unnatural unions, and so we shouldn't either. No, he gives his approval to marriage. One man, one woman, for life. Here's the thing, though. It's, it's pretty easy to poke holes in what's going on out in the world out there. It's not so easy to look at ourselves in the mirror. And, my friends, what we see there is not very pleasing. We have a lot that falls short in our lives, don't we? You know, Jesus attends our marriages every day. Does he like what he sees there? Does he like it when the husband acts more like a couch potato than the spiritual head of the family that God has called him to be? Does he like it when the wife steps out of her role of helper and decides that she is going to take charge of everything? Does he like it when husbands and wives quarrel more than they communicate? Does he like it when the family Bible collects about an inch of dust while the computer and the TV are warm and well used? Does he like it when we're out seeking easy divorces for any and every reason? My friends, you know the answers to these questions. Jesus really set a priority when he attended that wedding. His actions show his love for marriage. My friends, sometimes by our actions, by our words, it looks as if we have nothing but contempt for God's gift of marriage. This, too, is sin. Sin that, like all the others, earns for us God's anger and punishment eternally. My friends, this is where the good news comes in. Our actions often show our mixed up priorities. But Jesus' actions show his priorities. They show what's important to him. They show his compassion for sinners like you and me. He cares for us in every need, both body and soul. Just listen to the care he gave in our text. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine, but you have saved the best until now. That wedding couple was faced with a problem, a potentially embarrassing situation. They had run out of wine. I suppose it would be like having to stand up at your own wedding reception, tap on the mic and get everybody's attention, and say, sorry folks, I know we're only halfway through the people who are here, but we're completely out of food. It's okay though, there's a Burger King next door. Go ahead and order whatever you would like. What an embarrassing situation. Now, again, the world would not have ended if Jesus had not intervened. But those empty wine vessels threatened to diminish the joy of this very special occasion. Again, it wasn't life and death, but to that young couple, this was really a serious problem. With one action, Our Lord Jesus both solved the problem and gave them a generous wedding gift. He gave them about 120 gallons of wine. And by the way, we're not talking about Boone's Farm here. Apologies to all of you Boone's Farm drinkers out there. We're not talking about Boone's Farm. We're talking about really, really good stuff. Even the master of the banquet tasted some and said, this is the best that there's been. Jesus did all of that. He didn't just give them enough to scrape by. He gave them a rich gift out of the riches of his grace. My friends, like that wedding couple, we all face problems all the time, pretty much every day, don't we? Little problems, big problems, in-between problems. A flat tire on the way to work. A D on the geometry test. a Notice a pink slip that says you've got to clean out your desk by the end of the day. A spouse lying in a hospital bed, or even worse, in a casket. There is no shortage of trouble in this life. What a comfort it is to know that Jesus knows about these problems. He cares about these problems, even the little one, and He has power to help, even to solve them. He doesn't promise that He's going to solve all of our little problems. He said that we needed to bear our crosses. He said in this this world you will have trouble. But He does promise to cause all of them to work out for our eternal good. At Cana, He solved a problem and He showed His compassion for people in their need. My friends, remember that, that same compassion He has for you and for me. So we know that Jesus can solve those little problems, but can He take care of our biggest problem? The greatest problem that all of us have, the sin and guilt that plague us every day. And the answer, of course, is a resounding yes. At that wedding feast, our Lord Jesus showed us exactly what he is capable of. He showed us who he is. He showed and revealed his glory as the one and only Savior. At that feast, Jesus did something that only God can do. He took plain old water and he changed it into fine wine. Now, nothing was added to the water. The servants didn't go in the back room and find a couple of extra cases that they had forgotten about. There was no trick here. This is a miracle. Something that goes beyond the natural laws that we are used to. Something that goes far beyond our ability. But it wasn't a problem for the Lord Jesus because he's God and as God and the creator of the world was no problem for him to take a little bit of that H2O that he himself had designed and created and change it into some wine. Saint John, the inspired writer of our text, was there. No doubt he tasted that wine and this is how he concluded the matter. He said, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him." Now a sign is something that points to something else. It calls your attention to something else. Dark clouds on the horizon are the sign of an approaching storm. And oil spots on the floor of your garage are a sign that you may be having some car trouble. Contractions are a sign that that little baby is going to be on the way soon. The miracle that Jesus performed at Cana is a sign that that draws our attention to him. It's a sign that shows us Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the promised Savior of the world. My friends, this miracle of changing water into wine was just the first of many miraculous signs that our Lord Jesus performed. I mean, a little later on, he would walk on water, he would feed multitudes, he would calm a storm, he would heal those who were sick and crippled, blind and deaf, he would drive out demons, he would even raise the dead. And every one of these signs was like a a gigantic billboard with huge floodlights pointing at it gigantic bold letters that say Jesus is Lord Jesus is God Jesus is the Savior that is not just an abstract theological fact that's a real truth that has a real impact on our lives because if Jesus is who he claims to be and he is then we can trust him we can take him at his word He says, I came to seek and to save what was lost. That was his whole reason for coming to this world, his mission, to save sinners like you and me. He says the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, and that's exactly what Jesus did. He willingly gave up his life in agony on the cross for all of us. He said from that cross, it is finished, and my friends, it is Every last sin has been paid for in full. He says to each of us, take heart, your sins are forgiven. And they are, every last one of them including all of our failures as husbands and wives and single people, our lust, our infidelities, our same-sex attractions, all the time that we have simply despised God's plan for sex and marriage and family, all of that is gone, washed away in the blood of the Lamb. That lamb said, destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it again in three days. And that's exactly what he did. Three days after he died, he came out of that tomb fully alive, victorious. And my friends, it's that victorious, risen Savior who says to us, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And that's just what he's doing right now, preparing a place for each and every one of us in his Father's glorious heavenly mansion. My dear brothers and sisters in the faith, like those first disciples who attended that wedding feast and tasted that miraculous wine, put your trust in Jesus. He is your loving, your compassionate, your glorious, and your only Savior. Amen.